Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. And special guest, Devika Girish. Hi there. Hello. How are you today? Doing pretty well. How are you guys? I am doing fine. Yeah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't want to speak it's, for Michael. It's uh, Sunday, which is always, you know, <laughs> right before Monday, but it's wow. not its fault. <laughs> Congratulations, Rebecca Black. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, Davika, what could you tell us a little bit about yourself to introduce yourself to uh, to our audience? Sure. Um, so I'm, my name is Davika. I'm a freelance film critic. Uh, I've written for Film Common, The Village Voice, R.I.P., um, <laughs> Reverse Shot, uh, Movie, a bunch of places. And right now, I'm actually a master's student at USC, um, and I'm I'm getting a degree in specialized arts journalism. So. Nice. All right. And we are all gathered here today to talk about Madeline's Madeline, the newest film from writer-director Josephine Decker. And this is a, uh, I, I don't know, I was going to start rolling into the credits already, but let's just hang back for a second. Talk about, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and all that. Email us, podcast at filmstage.com. Go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash show and uh, help us to produce these wonderful episodes for as little as $1 an episode. You get access to our Slack channel where you can talk with us directly and give us all your opinions on stuff. Tell us how wrong we were. Tell us how right we were. All that good times. So It's again, usually wrong. Let's it's be usually honest. wrong. I don't remember the last time I got a single good word from those people. If you would like to be one of those people, go to patreon.com slash show and uh, give us your money. Of course, we are also brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema, where every day their fashionable, wonderful curators bring you a brand new film to enjoy for 30 days. So you have a constantly rotating selection of 30 films from which to choose. And um, we've talked about it a few times, but we once again want to highlight Ryuchi Sakamoto's Coda, which uh, is online premiering exclusively on the MUBI platform. Um, it just finished or is winding up its U.S. theatrical run. And um, yeah, check it out. It's uh, yeah. Michael, do you want to do you want to try to explain this thing? <laughs> Ryochi Sakamoto or Koda or what are you just, referring to? <laughs> I don't even know how to begin in all honesty. <laughs> well, I think it's just uh, I'd say a 
album, uh, Async, which is, you know, very experimental. It's kind of experimental classical. Um, I, I mean, he's a wonderful uh, composer in general. He's probably best known for to film people as the uh, creator of the score for Happy or Merry Christmas, uh, Mr. Lawrence. Totally should have looked up the actual name, but it's uh, <laughs> the Bowie film that he wrote say, the theme for. Um, but yeah, it's I, I've heard just fantastic things about it, so I'm really interested to check it out. Um, and I don't know if you're going to mention Johnny Toe again, Brian, but I actually did get a chance to watch one of these selections on Mubi currently, and I can't recommend enough Mad Detective, <laughs> which is a detective story with a supernatural twist that all right it's in the first five minutes so i'll just like wet the listeners appetites it is about a detective who can see the inner personalities of everyone around him so that's how it twists the idea of a strange neurotic detective also in the opening moments he cuts off the the like the like uh, edge of his ear completely. And I cringed really, really badly. (laughs) Wow. Glowing recommendation. That's a great recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you can check out all that and more on Mubi. All you got to do is go to M U B I.com slash film stage and you can get a free 30 day trial to do that. And that's it. Now we can talk about the movie that we are here to talk about. And again, that is Madeline's Madeline, the newest film from Josephine Decker. This movie stars Helena Howard, Randa July and Molly Parker, primarily amongst a talented cast of many others. And I'm just going to read from the IMDb description (laughs) because I, I'm not good enough to come up with a synopsis off the cuff. A theater director's latest project takes on a life of its own when her young star takes her performance too seriously. So there's that. And I'm sorry. Oh, I just like chuckled. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Okay. And um, yeah. And, you know, just to further confuse things, here is the trailer. So now that everyone is totally on board with exactly what this movie is about, <laughs> let's you know, talk that about trailer's it. pretty appropriate. If you watch it after the fact, it makes some surrealist sense. <laughs> yeah, that's a that is a way to put it. Um, so let's talk about this movie. <laughs> um, Davika, I'd love for you to kick us off with your roundabout kind of. I, I know this is an absurd thing to say for this movie, but spoiler-free opinions <laughs> of Madeline's Madeline. Um, oh, man. So I can't tell them who kills Madeline. <laughs> um, well, so I have to say, so I wasn't like a huge fan of Josephine Decker before 
I saw this film just because, you know, um, she's done a lot of work that's kind of more experimental or more formalist. And I felt like those those in the past felt to me like a little bit precious and uh, not very substantial. So I went into this film not having very high expectations and for maybe the first 10 or 20 minutes, I really was, I don't know how to put it, like disturbed. Like there was just something I, I didn't like about it. I felt like there was this, there was this sensory onslaught that was just really displeasing. But that feeling like slowly grew into admiration where I was like, whoa, this film is really getting under my skin. And that's kind of impressive. Um, and I kind of recognized how that sensory onslaught was really making the point of the film very beautifully. Um, sorry, I, nothing I've said actually is going to make any sense to anyone <laughs> who hasn't seen the film, but, um, I thought that it, it's just a very, it's a very effective film is what I thought formally. Um, it, it's very. It's unlike anything else I've seen on screen recently. Um, it's a really impressive feat of formal and kind of stylistic experimentation, while also, um, you know, while also kind of exploring this intersection of mental illness and race and performance in a way that I haven't seen um, a film do in a while. Does that make sense at all? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Please chime in and clarify this. <laughs> All right. In that case, Michael Snydell, what are your thoughts on Madeline's Madeline? Yeah, I I feel uh, very similar to Tavika in in the sense that I I actually watched just before this, uh, Thou Wast uh, Mild and Lovely, and I was fascinated by the editing and the cinematography and the ways that it's kind of playing with. Um, like this, these very extreme contrasts between like primal sexuality and then like uh, very stereo not stereotypical, but like uh, a very like aesthetic like uh, motherhood and stuff. Just the ways that it was playing with that extremes, but I did also find it kind of precious and a little bit unsatisfying by the end. And I think this is much more interesting of a film in a number of ways, partly because it seems so self-critical um, and seems very aware of the pratfalls of like a number of films that have to do with mental illness and like making really expansive drama out of, you know, uh, people dealing with the way that the mind works. Like, you know, you know, even in the last couple of years, you have something like Cresha, which is a film that I admire, but as more and more years go, or excuse me, as the years go by, um, I can't help but feel it, it's really gross and skeevy about it. Like, in a way, this almost reminded me of uh, a documentary that I really loved last year called The Work, um, in the sense of, you know, being... Um, of having to constantly think about what it means to have a camera on people who are just acting as themselves and, you know, where that ends and, you know, what happens when you're done with the exercise and when you're just being yourself. And I, I think this film 
mostly navigates those things in interesting and kind of really bold ways. Now, what I'll say without getting into any spoilers is this movie for a while, like seems to have very fluid ideas about mental illness and race in very like intelligent ways. And it makes a choice towards the end and then it kind of opens up that choice again. And I think the the pronged interpretations of what it could be said about the movie, I think there's one interpretation where I think this becomes a very good movie and one where it becomes kind of bullshit <laughs> to be crass. <laughs> so I, I, I do want to have a conversation about that. And I, I think that is something that should be discussed further, but even just as a piece of, you know, fascinating film in the, and one that completely commits uh, to the mindset that it wants to convey. I have many reservations about this film. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, let me start off with all the positives. I think that all of the acting is, very good to excellent. Um, Miranda July is handed a tough role and really, I would say sinks her teeth into it, but that makes it sound a lot more showy than it is. She's she's kind of unafraid of being everything that the movie asks her to be. And uh, I think that's great. Molly Parker has a role that is sort of short shrifty and sort of two dimensional, but she imbues it with a lot. And I think she does what she needs to do. Helena Howard <laughs> is a goddamn tour de force in this movie. And Where did she come from? <laughs> I don't even know. She is, I think, 17. Yeah, and I think Decker like met her at a talent show. What? Yeah. That is crazy. I think yeah. they said that in an interview. Like she just saw her, she performed some monologue at a talent show, and Decker was like in tears and and told her I was want to make a I want to make a movie with you which makes I mean, sense honestly yeah. <laughs> I mean she is it is impossible to look away from her in this movie and it, it like everything that she's doing every word that she speaks every glance is just like riveting and oh just man like you're watching her on the screen and you're like this is someone who i'm going to be watching for the next like 60 years because that's probably when i'm gonna die and hopefully <laughs> she lives much longer than that and like it, i just can't wait to see what she does next now all of that said uh i'm gonna start off with the really cheap stuff i hate actors <laughs> i hate <laughs> so like this movie where so much of it takes place in a theater troupe and is a bunch of people talking about the craft of acting. And it's like, what are you, what are you right now? And it's like, I'm a sea turtle. It's like, no, you're a woman pretending to be a sea turtle. It's like, Oh, for the love of God. <laughs> and I just, so I had a lot of just internal hurdles to get over because I have an issue with people who speak with too much earnestness about things that I find to be ridiculous. And that is a personal flaw within me, but that is something I brought to this movie. And then I think that the movie is saying something interesting in its last 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't think that it invests enough in making us maybe realize that that's what it's been doing earlier um, to really land it. And then just the fact that it's saying that, but this is a movie that's still made by who it's made by, uh, you know, is, is kind of weird. It's um, the movie starts to wrestle with questions of like ownership of personal narratives and identity politics. And I, all of that is very admirable, except for the fact that the movie itself is an act of doing that thing. And even if it's criticizing itself, it still did it in the first place. And so when it was all over, I was like, okay, but you did it. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's going to, you know, we'll have to like get into spoilers to really talk about it directly. But like, yeah, there's something weird to me about making a movie that is like this and then having a secondary character be the like director's identification character and having the primary character be someone who is not like the director. And I don't know, cause you're, you're still telling that person's story, even if you're helping them reclaim that story because you're the one telling it. So I, you know, maybe I just got to wrestle with this movie for a couple more months or something to really, to really nail down whether I think that it was a good idea. Um, but a lot of the things that were a part of this movie are very compelling and very interesting and I think it's the type of movie that I will appreciate talking about perhaps without uh, having appreciated seeing it or appreciating it itself, but the conversations will be good enough that it will still feel vital and relevant. If that makes any sense. No, I, I think it, <laughs> I think it totally does. And, and okay. I think it's, it's something I've definitely been thinking about in relation to this film. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the work just a, a bit ago and that was a documentary. So that, that kind of eliminated some of the ethical quandaries, you know, even as it was a camera that was following them, there was a sense of consent that you're seeing mm-hmm. on screen. And I think it does get, you know, I think it does get weird with, I'm not going to call Helena, or excuse me, uh, Helena Howard, you know, not a performer. Um, like, I, I don't think this is quite the same as something, you know, like the, what the Safties did with, you know, heaven can wait or something, you know, finding, you know, real drug addicts in that sense, which, but those types of conversations were things that I was thinking about a little bit even before you get into the specific context of this film. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, uh, Brian, to an extent, because I think there is a certain, like, not only does this film kind of require you to submit it to it from literally the first moments with, like, experimental theater, but also in requiring you to think about these things abstractly and watch them and enjoy them. Like, it's... It's hypocritical, but I also think that it seems so aware of that that I'm I'm kind of okay with it, though there is a certain reticence I have about it. Devika, do you have any thoughts about? Yeah, I mean, about the um, ethics. Yeah, I I definitely see where 
like Brian's coming from. And that's something that I was also thinking a lot about because I think a big part of this movie, for me at least, like while watching it had to do with race. And, and um, you know, the, the points that you mentioned about that, you know, you're not a cat, you're inside the cat or whatever, that kind of <laughs> performance art babble um, was off-putting initially. But then I also saw it as just like a representation like an on-screen representation of a particular kind of like class culture and like this bougie New York performance culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And once I kind of saw it as a representation of that and, and quite in, in many instances, a very pointedly tongue in cheek representation of that. And also self-critical, as you said, because, you know, that's the thing, like, that's why I mentioned Decker's like previous work because, like thou wast mild and lovely, like that almost falls into that same kind of genre of art, you know, like, um, and so, so I initially, I was like put off by it, but then I kind of thought that my reaction was the reaction that she was kind of, you know, that was the reaction it was intended to solicit, uh, sorry, elicit. And, with with like the the hypocrisy of the director perhaps enacting the very thing she's dramatizing and critiquing i think there's some there is some murkiness there and it would be like definitely worth talking about at the same time i think i don't know how how uh, like how specific i can be right now cuz i know this is supposed to be spoiler free but um <laughs> A lot of it had to do, I think, with the characters like mental illness and kind of family situation and the uh, Molly Parker's character, who you might consider a Josephine Decker stand in, um, kind of using that uh, and exploiting that to create this, you know, work of art. And to me, I don't know if that necessarily translates to the situation that we, to the kind of meta filmic situation like I think Helena Howard is like very clearly performing in this film um based on what I've read about this film and what I've read from interviews and stuff it was collaborative but I don't think it's like her dramatizing her life and so I I don't know I think that makes it different for me because what I thought was like a crucial element of the film's kind of critique of this type of um you know taking ownership of someone else's narrative, especially like a white creator taking ownership of a non-white person's narrative. A big part of that was the specificity of Madeline, the character's like kind of life in the film and where she comes from and her family and her mental illness. And so because of that specificity, I didn't necessarily think it was like enacting the same things in real life. Does that make sense? Like, I saw, I thought of Helena very much as distinct from Madeline. I mean, I think that too, but I guess I still have even, even like just further removed from the text of the movie. This is still a movie by like a white woman about a biracial girl with like mental illness and stuff. So even if it's, even if it's not Helena Howard, it's still, it's still, I don't know. It's still like a white director making a movie about like a white theater director kind of like 
appropriating the life of her, like one of her minority students. And I, I don't know, it just like, it, it sort of rubbed me the wrong way because if, if the white director was the, the protagonist and like the twist was that she was making the wrong choice and like, that was something they had to wrestle with. Maybe that would be one thing. I think it would be a somehow worse and more tonally dissonant movie, but at least it wouldn't have that weird kind of thing where like if you're, I don't know, if if you're trying to make a movie about theft, but you stole everything you used to make the movie, it, there's just something mm. really strange to me about having that idea and like saying like maybe I don't have the right to tell anyone's story and then and then doing it in this particular way where like someone would openly say like yeah I don't think you had the right to tell this person's particular story like even if they helped you out like maybe you should have stepped aside at some point and let them do it but I mean in what exactly did josephine decker steal in this case but that's the thing like i don't i don't know but i just don't like there's that whole question of like you know who should you tell whose story yeah like you know when people this is a uh, we can't get away from superhero movies but like when <laughs> oh, no. when when people were like who's gonna direct wonder woman and people were like mm. well dear god let it be like a woman at least like sure. because there is some sort of like power in in making sure that you at least have like a fraction of the point of view of the person that you're making a movie about. And so I don't know. It just seems it, like I said, it just seems weird for a, a white woman to make a movie about a mentally troubled biracial girl and have the movie be about how that's wrong. Also, <laughs> like I'm well, having trouble think- figuring out if that's like genius or if it's <laughs> really missing the point. If that I makes mean, any sense. I think I might be like splitting hairs at this point, but mm-hmm. also I, I mean, again, I don't necessarily see the movie as like Josephine Decker making a movie about a biracial girl actress with mental illness. It's, I saw it more as a movie about the encounter between a character like that and a white creator. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so and if it's that way, then I think it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> choose your adventure you know the side of this movie is good based on yeah how you like, can summarize it it's one of those perspective sculptures where it's like if you stand in one place it looks like a handgun and if you stand in the other place it looks like america like yeah what no, is that so, one that's a, a duck and a uh the rabbit a duck and a rabbit yes yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, I think I think one final thing that we could talk about before we get into because I, I think I do want to come back to this conversation to talk about specifically a number of different scenes. But I, I think one thing that should be mentioned here, um, you know, for whatever, I, while I have some of the similar qualms I, as you, Brian, on an abstract level, I do think that this is uh, this is the first film in a while that just feels like a, a feat of collaboration to me um, that we don't get that often. I, I don't generalize obviously here, but I guess my point being that, you know, Ashley Connor did the cinematography here and just from time to time, I was thinking about what kind of minute 
direction and like constant conversation was going back and forth between Ashley Connor, between Josephine Decker and between Helene, uh, Helena Howard, like just, just the way that those, uh, those three are in complete sync in this film is, is, is like a level of orchestration that we don't see that often, especially, you know, and, and it, it is kind of fascinating to mention that, um, you know, she, I, I think it's fair to say that Josephine Decker was somewhat in the same orbit as a lot of independent filmmakers who are thinking about, about, uh, you know, hybrid of fiction and nonfiction, uh, meta filmmaking, you know, people like Robert Greene, people like Joe Swanberg, people like, you know, many of these people in the independent scene who have now, you know, become relatively large voices in their own right. But I think it is nonetheless like fascinating to, uh, to think about just how much of a, a, a spectacle that this film is. Um, yeah, sorry. I don't know what kind of point I was just trying to make. I, there was just, there's something about this film that as a number of people have pointed on that it, it feels singular in a way that, uh, a lot of independent filmmaking, uh, doesn't. I, no, I, I think, sorry. No, go ahead, please. Oh, I, I was going to say, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. The film really, I mean, it just feels like a fugue or something, you know, it's just, um, like when I, I felt like when I got, when I, you know, I like emerged from the film when I walked out of the theater and, um, it's, I, I felt like it was the kind of film where you couldn't isolate all its moving parts. Um, and really just, it's, there's like a lot happening, but it's all kind of swirling around this, the central character's performance. And um, it, it's, it's really, I mean, you described her performance as a force of nature, but I think, I mean, the whole film feels like that to me. Um, very forceful and very organic. And I think that could also like lead into just like a discussion about, like you said, you know, collaborative filmmaking. And also, I mean, this is, this feels like a Josephine Decker film, but it also doesn't feel very auteuristic. Mm. Um, And yeah, that's, I think that's something interesting about it as well. All right. So are you ready for spoilers? Do we even know yeah. what that counts as? <laughs> I think right. it just allows us to talk a little bit more in depth <laughs> instead of circling around. Agreed. Uh, so spoilers for this movie. I'm going to, this, uh, this is just something stupid to start us off with. I was really hoping that there was going to be some sort of supernatural element of people <laughs> Swapping souls with other things. Um, the opening is someone saying, like, you're not really a cat. This is just a metaphor. And then Helena Howard doing a very convincing, like, cat impression as her mother, like, just kind of very creepy. Her. Yeah. Deeply disturbing. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, like, it was so, it, it's like, like it, I had, like, an uncanny valley kind of reaction to it. It was just... <laughs> Too much. It was to the point where when she did it later in the movie, I was like, she's going to bite one of those kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was, I, I don't know. I was sort of hoping for a 
being John Malkovich type of weirdness. That did not happen. Um, other stuff did, though. I'm curious. I'm curious if any either of you felt like you really got a good solid read on who Madeline or her mother were and if not do you think that that was on purpose as an illustrative point of what the movie was trying to do hmm. what do you mean by like well so I don't know. Like I kept trying, I kept waiting for, I guess like the silver key moment that would come in any other movie Mm -hmm. where like, they really like nail down precisely what, uh, like what was wrong with Madeline or what her diagnosis was Mm -hmm. or like what was wrong with her mom or what her diagnosis was. And like to give us something. And like at the end of the day, it just feels really, I don't know. Um, It's, it's kind of, ethereal and undefined and i'm i think that that's on purpose as a way to kind of make its point about how you can't really take over someone's life and understand it fully enough as though it were your own yeah i think a lot of those details something i did notice about the film was how a lot of like details that you might consider important for character background things like that were kind of peripheral like you know you would see them in the frame and kind of peripheral positions or uh like you know the scene are we good to talk about specific scenes now oh yeah yes yeah, yeah, okay yeah, um and when she and those two boys are watching porn in her basement and there's all these like pictures of white women on the walls and there's some like throwaway comment about Madeline's dad having a thing for white women. Sure. I think it's, it's, one of them says jungle fever, I believe even. <laughs> Something like that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it is a pretty small moment and it's kind of a throwaway comment. And at that point in the movie, there's like just so much going on, like sonically, like, you know, it's the kind of soundscape is just is a lot um, and it's kind of discordant. And so it's like something that I feel like you might not even necessarily catch or or, or register fully. Um, but, you know, those kinds of details do clarify so much about Madeline and her mom um, and sort of her relationship with, with Evangeline. Um, and those kind of details are definitely kind of, are marginal in the film. Um, and, but I, I really liked that because kind of what you were saying, like, you know, this point of like, you can't really know someone and you can't really uh, kind of build, you can't make someone's life into a story. And I think like kind of having all those details, it, it can be objectifying when you're telling a story like this. And yeah, to me, to me, it felt like an attempt to not do that and to kind of get to know this person through these little fragments of who she is or who she could be. Yeah, I think, I, I think I, I feel very similarly. I, I admittedly had not thought of, uh, of Brian's notion about, uh, 
that being intentional on a script level, or it seems weird to say on a script level for this, intentional in a way of saying that you can't tell the whole story. I more saw it as a way to push back at a, a lot of depictions of mental illness. Because I, I think especially in terms of recent things and, and things that are especially more scripted, um, you know, mental illness is often delineated between times when you have episodes or something along those lines and something and times where you are, and I say this in quotation marks, fine. Mm -hmm. And I really like that this film doesn't want to make those connotations. It Mm -hmm. doesn't want to make mental illness into this, uh, you know, dragon that needs to be slayed or anything. It's something much more continuous and fluid. Like, uh, my, my partner had actually noticed that, um, I hadn't realized it until she mentioned it, that every time that she performs, um, with the exception of the ending, she has some form of panic attack afterwards. Um, and that was something that when she just recognized in her, herself, so she really homed in on that. But um, but the, the very fact of doing that and having it, you know, there's no really big moments that like, uh, sorry, like that predict when that's going to happen. And, and I think that's what I think actually keeps this away from a lot of the pratfalls that I was talking about with mental illness or even, you know, one really fascinating, uh, dichotomy I have, uh, or I think is in here is the ways, and I can't believe that it successfully does this without it feeling exploitative, but the ways that it draws direct connections between Madeline and the homeless man and children. And that should be something that should be like, so infantilizing and so inappropriate, but the way that it does it, it represents it as uh, a, a form of empathy, not like props. And I think that's what I was continually taken by when it came to the ways that the almost like uh, the scraps of her psyche like um, were built into some larger story is um, – yeah, that there was no beginning and end, that it was just kind of one uh, continuous, um, you know, loop. And and I think the ways that, you know, Ashley, sorry, Ashley Connor, I believe. Uh, yeah, Ashley Connor, you know, the shallow focus, the fact that so many of these conversations, like it's not, uh, uh, the last thing I want to say about this is it's not like, you know, one or two conversations that are shot in a totally different way. The whole thing is shot in this, you know, like aqueous, uh, just kind of dissonant, um, but also like therapeutic, um, like collage. And, And the fact that like the whole movie is like that is I think partly why it works and it doesn't, it, it, it why it potentially um, it doesn't feel like a stunt. Now, with that said, I'm not sure how I feel about the final minutes of the movie, which I don't quite want to get to. But there are potentially some like specific details in here that I that could 
undermine my reading of that. Well, now all I want to know is what those are. (laughs) (laughs) Forget I said that and just... (laughs) I I keep talking for too long. You guys got to jump in. Jeez. Well, I'll I'll say this, that, I mean, I think that's a really good point um, about how the movie's kind of using that kind of obfuscation, uh, which comes like whether it's through the style or the structure is, is a way to avoid these uh, pratfalls and narrative pratfalls that are common in stories about mental illness. And also, you know, if you think about it, if there were more, if the movie allowed us to get a better handle on what a, who exactly these characters are and what's ailing them and what their background is, I think it would turn into a certain, it, it would turn in, turn into a certain kind of very recognizable film. Like, mm. you know how, I mean, when we began this, this conversation and we were kind of struggling to even summarize it and, you know, the log line or whatever that you read doesn't really say much. And I think if there were like more specific details, those are the words we would use to summarize or talk about this film. And that makes it a certain kind of film, a certain kind of film about someone like young, you know, who is whatever schizophrenic or or has mental illness um, and these kind of racial and class dynamics um, and I, I feel like that that can often like flatten a film into like a type or a trope. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yes. I, I, I agree <laughs> with that. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, I'd be a little bit more. I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about um, Brian. It sounds like so. It sounds like you did want a little bit more from uh you know madeline and regina's character i don't know Um, if i did i mean to go back to my original question when we opened up i have a problem with like a movie that employs convenient quote-unquote mental illness just to create moments and so part of me wonders like did they have something or are they just throwing stuff out there and like obliquely talking about it so she can have like convenient bipolar mood disorder or something like that. But again, I it's it's hard to know because it does feel like this movie is very cognizant about a lot of those pitfalls and therefore is probably avoiding them or at least trying to avoid them. And I I honestly don't know what more I would want from this movie. I feel like this is what it wants to be. And it does what it sets out to do. Again, depending on what you think it's doing, either well or poorly, or very well but maybe like misguidedly. This is, this, is, you, this is like every movie. <laughs> yeah, but like sometimes it's easier to to kind of wrap your head around what's what it wants to do. Like Sicario, Day of the Soldado. I was like, all right, that was what it was, and it's over, and I'm fine. And in this movie, I'm like, I don't know, guys. I just don't know. Um, you know, so like, honestly, for a lot of this movie, I was just like, I just can't wait to see what Helena Howard does next. Like, I, I took a lot of pleasure in this just as like a kind of showcase reel for everything that she could do uh, between being a very disconcertingly lifelike cat and, <laughs> you know, being totally normal, quote unquote. And then like her her weird moments of 
misfittery, you know, like when she's talking to Evangeline's husband, that was a very strange moment in the film. Mm. Like with the boys in the basement, you know, when she was just hanging out with that one guy by the water and everything seemed fine. You know, it's just like it really did become like just kind of the the Helena Howard show. And I just kind of just let myself lose myself to that. And when the plot really kicks in in like the last 10 minutes, I don't know. I didn't I like I still probably don't even know what I think about that. (laughs) Should we shift to that? (laughs) I mean, I'm down if you all are. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel don't like wanna... it makes a lot of sense also in this film to maybe work backwards from there because like so much of what we think, what we're saying about how we felt about the film feels like it might be challenged by that part. Mm-hmm. That's um, fair. Yeah, I I think yeah, I okay, so to be clear about my kind of cryptic comments earlier, the linear moment I'm Speaking to where kind of uh, the linear moment is when everyone in the room is aware that uh, Evangeline's character is manipulating, uh, sorry, Madeline's character and and is using her story. Um, But I, I, it is fascinating though that the moment that they notice is only when she says something that makes them uncomfortable, even though it's been pretty clear that she's, you know, been channeling Madeline's own experiences in various other improvisations. It's mm-hmm. the fact that it was so, it was such a, a, a raw experience <laughs> was what bothered everyone in the room. And, yeah. um, okay. So that is the linear moment. And I, I have to say, I, I feel odd about that moment for a few reasons. I I think it's interesting. And I think if it would have ended there, it would have put a bow on the film in the wrong way. But I think from there, then they very much to use the word you used earlier, uh, is, uh, flattens, um, Evangeline's character. I, I, I think that she's someone who is a lot more elusive than that ending sequence gives her. Um, Because that ending sequence, you know, has a very different tension than the rest of the film um, and kind of a a certain, like, very intentional caricature uh, caricature quality. Um, And then we get essentially a celebration of... The craft and it's a it's a lovely sequence like i i can't fault it formally i mean it's a it's an incredible sequence and i i mean it's fun that it comes at the end of a film that's been critical of performance for arguably the whole time and uh then we obviously get the the last shot which is her in front of a car and the possibility that either that last uh, kind of uh, set piece was in her head or even further back was in her head. Um, And I really, really don't like that possibility. (laughs) I don't, I've been, I, I mean, I, 
I don't love that final 15 minutes in, in general, to be honest, but the whole possibility that the rug is being pulled from me is one of my least favorite things because uh, I, this is a weird thing, but in the last 30, it, it like in the second act, I was pretty worried this was going to take like a single white female turn mm-hmm. um, or orphan turn. Um, and those are two films that I like, but obviously want nothing near the material in this. Um, uh, so I'm just, I don't want to play the interpretation game because it's really boring, honestly. But I also think that you're all right that you need to kind of start there <laughs> to figure out uh, how to um, view some of the earlier scenes in the film. <sighs> I think for me, the whole experience of the film was so physical. Um, Like, right from the beginning, there's something about the film that's very, like I said, you know, it got under my skin and it felt very visceral. Um, The way it's shot, the sound design, everything. And I think that it really imparts Madeline's kind of, it's like the, you know, the she's. It seems like she's always on this like precipice and this kind of tenseness and that that gets released on the stage. And I, I just felt like I felt the whole film in my body somehow. And those last fifteen minutes worked well, like really well for me because it seemed like a release of that kind of tension the physical tension the film had built up and it felt really cathartic and yeah I was also I I was like trying to figure out what it meant and how much was like reality and and um if there was some kind of rug pulling going on and my sense was that there wasn't and Somehow, I know this is, like, a really weird comparison, but, like, that switch kind of reminded me of, like, Bollywood films Hmm. where, where, like, song and dance is not just, like, a removal from the plot, but it's, like, displacing the plot onto, like, gestures and music and and kind of movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so that's what that sequence felt like to me. It was, like... I felt like it got to a point where to resolve everything that the film had brought up through just through plot um, or through narrative wouldn't work. And somehow it like displaced that onto this very gestural sequence. And that seemed fitting to me. Yeah. I kind of had a similar response where I was like, I guess this is the only way that they could think to really like put these ideas across because like every now and then the words won't do it. <laughs> and I didn't make the, the connection to Bollywood films, but the second you said that I was like, Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. Like that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Cause in my mind, it was just like that friend of yours who's trying to describe something to you and just breaks down into like grunts and hand gestures <laughs> because he can't think of the word he's looking for. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I just, 
I'm like, I'm still real lost with regards to this movie and trying to put together, like trying to put together how I feel about the ending. I feel like I, I still haven't even figured out how I feel about everything that came before it. Um, I don't know where earnestness ends and like satire begins and all of that. Mm. It's just like, it's so hard to like really nail it down in this. If only because again, I think I'm just, I might be too hung up on the fact that like, this is a movie that's ostensibly about Madeline and like the way that she's being pillaged. But the person who made this movie is the same or or treading similar ground and i just keep i keep getting hung up on that um i sort of almost wish that i didn't have that context and i could look at it a little more clearly just from like a just like collaboration i don't know like i wish i knew nothing about this movie before seeing it and i wish that i hadn't like looked up any reviews or read anything afterwards to like try to see what other people were thinking like i don't know like this is a rare movie where i'm like the less i would have known about this maybe the clearer my opinion would be you know i think i you know i i, I love that uh, that relation to bollywood I, all that jazz was the thing i was uh, thinking of the mm. ending sequence of that but um you know I, I i guess the the thing that cheapens that a little bit for me is that last shot just leaving the door open for what has just been such a such a you know like refreshingly complicated like open-ended view of of mental illness and of ownership like the ways that it it uh you know flits back and forth with so many of those other subjects just the possibility that that last shot could leave it open that some of this wasn't true that that you know shared catharsis was like an illusion or something it just really it really it really bothered me and it, and to like to make a, a completely bad faith <laughs> thought it it did make me wonder about intention um I, and you know about that earnestness that uh, Brian that you're talking about like <clears throat> it that earnestness is kind of fascinating cuz like even those earlier, you know, experimental theater scenes, as much as they like, you know, they make me kind of uncomfortable to watch someone do that without like someone interrupting and recognizing that space. Um, you know, like the film takes it completely seriously. It's not really like it's, you know, turning its nose up at it and i kind of like that it can at once be a recognition that in some cases this like bougie experimental theater group can like help these people like you have that one scene with the the man who just got out of jail um and that's just kind of a a lovely little scene that seems to well you found that scene lovely Oh, I think it's that was exploitative as hell. No, I know. Here's but, a man who just got out of jail. Let's prod him for his life experience. No, 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 no. But not that. But in the sense of how pure everyone seemed to think it was. Ugh. Like that's what Ugh. I'm saying. Like, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Look, I have no. a I have a lot of problems with this group of presumably affluent people. Sitting in sure. a circle, 
cannibalizing this man's horrifying life experience and and like thinking that that's cool you know like it's just but i mean that's the point right it's yeah, kind of I hope building so. up to <laughs> that's and that's that's my thing it's like yeah that's like the first hint that like maybe this movie is like but again even like yes the movie is clearly making that point but at the same time i still find it strange that it was made by who it was made by with a protagonist who is who, who she is. Like if that, if that makes any sense. And like the fact that it was like a weird, you know, like it's a very collaborative thing. If you, if you click on uh, Helena Howard's IMDb name, it says miscellaneous crew, Madeline's Madeline development through improvisation with like, oh, is that what it says? That's, yeah. that's interesting. So like, that's, cool but isn't that literally what the movie is saying is bad and needs to be destroyed or cast out like i don't know and it's bumming me out that i don't know for certain well i think i think there is an interesting question of is it this specific context that is a problem or is it performance in general that is false Uh, you know like i i don't know i but i think that's partly what makes this movie so interesting to me is that it's just filled with contradictions which i generally just love but um i i don't i don't know i i think that again there's too much as Devika was kind of going on, there's a lot going on in the margins here. And I, I mean, I, this might be a good time to like shift a little bit to like the specific ways it's dealing with race and class. I, I mean, I think the party scene, the very fact that, um, sorry, uh, Evangeline's character is married to a, uh, her husband is black. Uh, the, the most of the people who are invited to that little get together are black. There are, you know, mixed race, children like the very like i don't know i i don't think that those things are in are accidental or token or a way of like i don't this just feels uh genuine like it's genuinely trying to uh combat those optics in a way that i think a number of films haven't that's a straw man argument for sure but mm-hmm. um no especially I, I thought i thought that was really interesting um that her husband is revealed to be black and you know she's also pregnant at the time um because kind of early on in the film we learned that she's pregnant and so then it is later on basically we're learning that her baby is going to be biracial mm. and I think that does cast that character and her relationship with Madeline in a really new light. Um, And it kind of, for me, like it reframed the film as these two like white kind of women having this maternal power struggle over this girl. And also, you know, explains Evangeline's um, maybe desire to, be that figure for Madeline um, almost as a 
I don't know, maybe as a, maybe it reveals some kind of vulnerability within her or some kind of insecurity with, you know, her own kind of what she fears about motherhood. And I don't know, my point being that it, it makes their relationship feel much more specific than just an abstract kind of critique of ownership. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it, 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 it gave the Evangeline's character some sort of like a, a more specific motive than this is just a bougie white woman looking to, <laughs> you know, cannibalize this biracial girl story and there there was like no there's like something more here there's something personal about this i think even like an aside in that scene you know there's that bizarre interaction with that child who uh you know uh, imagines dying from nuts a nut allergy and like even that interaction i couldn't tell whether that young girl was her daughter (laughs) and like no i think she asks her i uh i think madeline actually asked the young girl yeah and and then there is a another young woman who briefly Evangeline also asked, like, are you okay in a very maternal way where I'm like, oh, is that also her teenager? Like, like it's <laughs> it's those things as well that, like, uh, yeah, add a specificity. That may also be why that ending feels a little bit of a letdown to me, even as it's a little bit inevitable mm. in terms of, like, I mean, Evangeline is a is not a good person. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to mince words here, but again, like to make her into a villain who wants to break a window with a brick seemed. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a choice. <laughs> it is a choice. I also yeah, want to say, really... I'm sorry, sorry you're I probably was... about to make an actual salient point. You can go first. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, if she really does feel like some kind of demon at the end, you know, when she's like, just before the the final the abstract sequence, it's like suddenly she becomes like so caricaturishly evil seeming. Yeah. Um, that's all I had to say. Not very salient. Well, all I was going to say was, <laughs> is there ever a movie where a party like that one hasn't looked completely insufferable? <laughs> Like every time that there's like a vaguely urban like artist class and they're like, oh, we're having like a party. You should come. And it <laughs> always. Sid. Yeah. Princess, Princess Sid. Sid. I, like, I, I, I think when we talked about Princess Sid, I even said it's a testament to this movie <laughs> that I would still go to that party because oftentimes these types of parties and movies strike me as just the worst possible way to spend any night of my week. And this one was exactly the same like i just like was sitting there i was like oh god who would willingly go to this and i just i had a friend in high school who would try to throw parties that were like that where it was like all she'd like get all of her different artist friends together and like maybe someone would put on something and maybe at some point someone would just stand up and yell a poem that just came to them and i just remember going to those and then thinking to myself this is why I have already started drinking. Like, this is why 
Like, this is why, even though I definitely feel like I have more in common with these people than, like, the crust punks I hang out with, I'm always going to hang out with the crust punks because the crust punks would never do this to me. You know, I was just like, I'll stay in this ritzy-ish neighborhood, go to this party. But then what I really want to do is just go to the place where everyone's watching the Texans game and they just boiled 14 pounds of crawfish. And I don't even like crawfish, but those crazy rednecks are more fun to be around than these just intellectual art, artistic jagoffs that I just can't stand. <laughs> and like, again, it's a part of me where I'm like, am I supposed to be hating this as much as I am? Or is there a part of me that's supposed to be feeling like the seduction of this? Because again, like if, if all of the acting stuff is satire, if that party is satire, then brava, like beautiful, like uh, roses shall be showered upon you. But if it's supposed to be something where I get the intrinsic appeal, I think it's just not made for me. <laughs> well, just I to be clear, we're talking about, are we talking about the party at Evangeline's yes, house at Evangeline's with her family? House. Yeah. Okay. With the guy who just kept walking around taking everyone's picture with the flash on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Because the there was also that peanuts. other party, right? Or was that just a celebration of her getting pregnant or something like that? I think that the one that they do like at the um at the studio or at the art space yeah. is like her her congratulations, you're pregnant thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, we didn't even talk about the photographer and the the photo shoot that he did. <laughs> The, 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 uh, what was the line? Like, there's two hot black chicks in space suits. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and also that was one of the scenes where, to me, it was like, how is no one else noticing how weird this is? Um, I mean, it starts off pretty weird. They have pig hats and they're in space <laughs> suits, and she's holding a cat. <laughs> no, but, but then- I mean, like, uh, you know, how is because. I don't which one of you said that, um, you know, it's only when you get to that linear, I, Michael, you were talking about that linear yeah. moment at the end. Yeah. And like, it's that, that's when they realize, oh, this is kind of fucked up. Right. And, Cause she immediately is like, let's get rid of the space stuff. Let's put them in the clothes they came in. Yeah. Except I want the, the like matriarchal figure to be wearing Madeline's mother's sure. sweater. And at that point right. I was like, wow, that's not subtle at all. Like what's, <laughs> Yeah, and how how is this? And that yeah, that was when it was like, this is already very clear what she's doing. <laughs> um, it's not it's not really about like prison anymore. It's going to be about Madeline and her life, and everyone <laughs> is like, oh, okay, cool. It's just like no one picked up on it for like right. another three days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just and, funny because it's like. Okay, so we're going from pigs in space in prison to Madeline's life. <laughs> and like, yeah, you're you're right. Like, how did no one, even at just the photo shoot, go like, I feel like we've really moved away from this thesis that we were exploring <laughs> here. <laughs> what, was, what was interesting to me about that and then later when Madeline's mother and... Uh, and Evangeline talk, I think Evangeline like visits them. Um, and then she like invites her over and you see, um, Madeline's mother, like she, it's almost as if she's like flattered by all of this attention. 
Mm-hmm. And it seems like that gets in the way of her recognizing what's happening. And that was a, like, for me, that was like an interesting little, again, very marginal bit of insight into who her mother might be. Yeah. Um, her mother, I mean, if she really does strike a very sad figure. Yeah. I, I think too, I, I mean, speaking in relation to earnestness and like, you know, this kind of meta trolling, you know, I, uh, Miranda July's character is like, is, seems very sincere and genuine for, you know, she's not really putting on a performance for, for most of this for, you know, she's kind of the straight woman for, you know, uh, like a better word for at least parts of this and in, in the sense that she you know, um, yeah, Brian, I think you were saying like her performance here is not showy, but it's, it's something that requires, you know, so much, uh, presence. It requires her to, you know, uh, constantly, uh, be aware of how to exist around this, you know, absurdity without actually like condescending to it or making it into a grotesquerie. And I, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I think even I don't. Now you guys are having <laughs> you're both having me question whether I should take any of this as genuine because I think Regina's character, you know, as as much as she gives truly terrible birds and the bees conversations, <laughs> um, you know, she does seem mostly well intentioned. And, and while I, I I don't know I I'm now questioning whether we are supposed to see any of these characters in in a real estate or in this kind of like you know tilted perspective because I again I don't it's not monolithic but uh, Josephine Decker's other film definitely is kind of trafficking in grotesquerie and like this almost like passive aggressive style of even something like, you know, like late Paul Verhoeven. Like there's, Mm. there's a sense of um, like acidity there. Um, But, but then it's just so weird because I, I feel like maybe a better way to describe what I was saying about that scene that I said was lovely, Brian was I feel like Josephine Decker and, um, and, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm going to keep forgetting her name. Ashley Connor seemed like distinctly interested in actually filming performance, like in its rawest form. Like there is a genuine affection for what they're doing, even if they're not affectionate towards these actual people and their weird attempts at like authenticity. The silence is killing me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm used to it. (laughs) There was a point when I was like, I thought that was ramping up to like a question and then it didn't. Um, It was, it just kind of fell off a cliff. (laughs) I mean, this is the movie for that. It's, it's, um, I honestly don't know. (laughs) I'm sorry, Michael, that we've like now made you question the nature of your reality. So, (laughs) well, I mean, it, it it is interesting 
her character was probably the one that, uh, by her, I mean uh, Miranda July's character, was the one that kept me guessing the most. Mm. And there is something about this film that, I mean, it, it feels like a thriller, even though it, it's not really a thriller, but it really does take a while to understand people's intentions. And there, there, there was also like, I don't know if you guys also felt this, but there seems to be like this threat of violence, like constantly lurking in the film. I, I, I kept expecting something really bad to happen. I don't know. It, you know, it's like when you said like at the party when she's pretending to be a cat and you're like, she's going to bite someone. And it's, it just feels like always like it's at the edge of something terrible or something really violent happening. And, and well, yeah, the movie opens with like a vision of, of, assaulting her mother with a, a clothes iron oh that's true <laughs> so like yeah, yeah there is a part of that that's just like that that image like lingers and really again does, like yeah. there's a point where you can kind of hear in the dialogue like below a layer of noise that like she threw an ashtray at her brother's head oh i didn't hear that oh. yeah and and also i think during the monologue her monologue at the end when she's like when she's mimicking her mother mm-hmm. there's some she says some things that are I I don't remember the details exactly, but yeah. Talks about violence basically. Um and and so I mean I think her mother's character is interesting because she really seems so pitiful for most of the film. She's just like perpetually like whimpering and trembling and like really, I mean, you know, it, like constantly like trying to figure out how to handle her daughter and always kind of doing the wrong thing but then I actually you know didn't see her as that well-intentioned by the end because then you get Mm. these hints of maybe she's like kind of an abusive mother or it looks like she has her own issues Mm -hmm. kind of mental illness issues and I think when you get those hints then her performance also makes a lot more sense just her like like I said that perpetual like trembling and indecision and um kind of volatile state um and that's also again interesting that because it also seems seems to say something specific about the character which we don't get a much of, we don't get too much of that but it says something specific about you know there's some kind of family history here there's some kind of um greater story here than just this girl this young girl who's struggling with mental illness um and like exploring it through her performance like there's something larger here there is yeah I mean, the- yeah <laughs> i was gonna say like yeah that whole that whole thought of like there is something larger here like permeates this entire this entire movie which is like it makes it like the movie is is made and compelling enough and effective enough or affecting enough um, that like, I can't call it like a failure and I can't speak about it the way I'd usually speak about a movie that at the end of the day, I don't know if I liked. It's just, it's, it's, it's in a very weird place of like being such a movie that it's like impossible to deny it. That kind of like accolade, like, (laughs) and I just, I don't even know how best to put it. I think another thing that makes uh, Regina's uh, character, I mean, I, I think 
Yeah, I, I think what you're saying, uh, to about that is is really on on, on point. But I think it makes it uh, another layer of that is that you know the people in their orbit, even you know the other members of this troop, the the poor assistants, <laughs> like they are they are are people who you know they they think they're an audience to like greatness or something and you know i i think even evangeline like speaking of the scene where you know um right uh, right at the end of the party where she makes you know an advance on evangeline's husband like and that sequence in the car like it's i mean i think it's ambiguous but there's a possibility that evangeline like uh, doesn't quite understand that some of that isn't acting I, and it like, mm. I, I, it's such a careful thing. Cause it doesn't like, it doesn't make her absolutely empathetic, but it also, you know, I, in the early part of the film, it never quite, um, fully demonizes her unless you start like taking yourself even a second outside of what you're watching. And, realize that this is you know mutually abusive like yeah it's that layer that makes it uh or excuse me the the voyeuristic i suppose multiple layers if i really want to be pedantic but um (laughs) yeah it's it's that that um also makes it a little bit odd and it is maybe why i'm maybe feeling a little bit more charitable to this towards this uh, improvisational troop than than, than you are right <laughs> <laughs> yeah what you're saying like you said you know the troop members they you know they look like they, like they believe that they're in the presence of true greatness and i think that's a really good point because something the movie made me think a lot about is how easily we associate like trauma and being vulnerable with trauma as some kind of great art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also why that, that scene with the, um, the guy who got out of jail is interesting. And you're right. It does feel kind of pure because of how earnest they are. Um, and I don't know. It just made me uh, reflect a lot about the ways in which, trauma is such a big part of like what we consider great art and great performance. Um, And so I think that's something the movie does well is kind of drawing your attention to how weird that is and, and how, how easily those like lines are transgressed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I'm gonna I'm gonna mention Mother here, <laughs> which um, <clears throat> which is uh, a film that famously I, I essentially had a breakdown on this podcast, but that's okay. Um, you know this, you know this this had me thinking about Mother I, in terms of that exact context you were you were just referring to, in the sense of like part of the reason this is this is in. Uh, somewhat of a odd thing to say, but one that nonetheless I'm thinking about a lot is um, the optics of mother coming from a male auteur is something that colors many of my opinions about a number of those choices. And conversely, the fact that this is written and directed by a woman and 
seems to be a very strong collaboration with at least three women and potentially even more if you, you know, consider the editor as well, uh, is partly what makes this, uh, this film seem a lot, uh, seem like it's devoid of ego and seems like I, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier of it, not feeling like an auteurist work, despite having that kind of, um, I don't know that almost like uh, throttling perspective. Like it's just <laughs> something we so often, you know, associate with, you know, the, the kind of heavy hitters, you know, whether they be the, you know, PTAs and, uh, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, like, the, you know, the people who make camera movement into, a, into its own form of like pyrotechnics. And it's something that, has bothered me over the years, but it's, it's fascinating that this film found uh, an alternative to it by not um, in, almost engaging in the, in the game. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but mm. <laughs> I just, uh, what I, else oh, is shit, new? Something. Yeah, you're, you're used to it, Brian. I know. I'm so sorry <laughs> that you're listening to this. Oh, no, I mean, um, I think it's also like the film is such that it kind of provokes rambling. Um, but you know, I think I think that's that's something I like about the film a lot too. And you're right. You know, when I was writing about the film and I was trying to kind of come up with um, with I mean, it, it was very hard for me to think of like references, really. Um, and something that I was thinking about was like a lot of films like these that, you know, you're said this kind of, you know, pyrotechnics of camera, but also um, films that really delve into the subjective and this like subjective perspective in this kind of blurring of what's interior and what's what's exterior. Um a lot of those films do have that kind of altruistic feel because it feels like the director is like trying to trick you, the audience, or <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, you know, sure. I mean, this isn't that category, but like, also, it, it's okay to curse on this podcast, right? Oh, fuck sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you know, like mindfuck films, like people. People colloquially refer to them that way, but you know, sure. like something like Donnie Darko or or Possession stuff like is that. What I was thinking of, <laughs> right? And that's something I did think of when watching this film. And there's a way in which I think those films it feels like the director is playing some trick on you, or wow, like look at how this director is using angles and and editing and not linear editing and only formal to confuse you and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to to create this experience where you don't know what's real and what's not. And this didn't feel like that to me. It feels so much more generous in the way that it does that. Maybe a lot of that comes from the way in which Ashley Connor and Josephine Decker really open themselves and open the film up to the, like, energy of performance so that even when the film feels really tense, really disturbing, there's some kind of joy to it because it feels like it's like fueled by these performances and it just feels very like it doesn't feel like the camera and 
kind of this, it doesn't feel like the director and the cinematographer are trying to control our perspective or trick us, but rather just kind of are, are opening themselves up to the way in which performance works and performance is really present and it's really immersive and it can be really fragmented and they're just kind of letting us into that. And I think all the formal pyrotechnics of this film seem to come organically from that, from their attempt to really film performance as it is. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. I, I, and I, I, I know this is somewhat of a polarizing comparison, but um, you know, at times it's almost a little bit like the newer films of Malik is what is what it reminded me a little bit. You know, this uh, latest uh, quadrilogy. Is that how you say that? That sounds right. <laughs> um, which is I, it's some films that I feel somewhat um, conflicted about, but ones nonetheless that were making me think about a, a freedom of camera work. And even as there is like a very distinct, like, you know, formalism, as you were saying, it's, 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 but it is, it, it is fascinating that this film comes out at this moment where I'm not sure whether it's just my personal tolerance for, um, I was just about to make a huge generalization about a 24. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> just hitting all the bases. Talk about Malik superhero exactly. films, a 24. I'm saying nice things about Malik. Give me credit. Here, Brian. <laughs> but like this film seems like what I want Oh, this is hyperbolic, but what I want the future of film to feel more like. <laughs> oh, uh, Michael. <laughs> I know, I know. The future of film. That's a perfect line to end on. Oh. We can just go out with that, Michael, championing <laughs> oh, no. this as the future of film. It's oh, 78 God. frames per second, and this. <laughs> Transformed into Ehrlich. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, jokes aside, we should probably wrap up. Are there any final thoughts that anyone wants to put out before we say goodbye uh, to this, the future of film? Please say something else. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, I, I really do think that um, wh- however this film might make you feel, and as I think we've realized, it, it is a film that kind of provokes conflicted reactions and confused reactions and i've definitely heard some like fiery negative takes and then i've heard people you know i'm i would say i'm one of those people who really loved it Mm -hmm. um but no matter how i think how how the film makes you feel i think it establishes that both helena howard and josephine decker and ashley connor and basically everyone involved in the film are people to look out for they're like strong talents and have something really interesting to say. So I don't know. I think it that makes it a film worth checking out and talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll edit my previous statements so it's less embarrassing. Helena okay. Howard is the future of film. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> oh, boy. I think that's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. Uh, Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. 
As always, go to patreon.com slash the film stage show and give us your money. Also, don't forget to check out movie.com slash film stage for a free 30 day trial of movie. You can watch a Johnny Toe film and then be able to talk to Michael Snydell about it. You can watch Ryuji Sakamoto's Coda. Um, you can also watch uh, Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. There's a lot of great stuff on there. Check it out. They're adding new things every day. Again, that is mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com slash film stage. Oh, you know what? There's one more thing I realized we didn't say. Um, <laughs> a, a listener actually wrote us an email this week, and it's one of the most thoughtful and kind things that we've ever received. Um, and we just like to thank them. I'm going to keep them anonymous because that's that'd be very weird to say their name. But uh, we just wanted to say that we did see your email and <laughs> we were really kind of blown away with with it. Uh, excuse me. I'll blown away by it, or at least that's my perspective. So reduced thank you very much. Reduced to a much. sense of reduced to. <laughs> speechlessness by it yes michael has been utterly flabbergasted by the emotions caused by the email sent by our new patron so thank you so much uh it was a really beautiful email to receive yeah all right let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time that we're in their ears uh let's start with our guest davica sorry can you say that again i i just what did you just say oh just basically like your plugs like where you are online and how people can find you Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I just, I don't know why I didn't hear yeah, that. It's fine. Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter um, at Devika Girgai. It's a really clever pun in Hindi, but, you know, no one here gets it. But um, you can find me there. You can talk to me there. I have a link to my WordPress where I have all my writing. Um, that's pretty much it. All right. Michael Snydell. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at @snidell, where I'll be calling every new movie that I see the future of cinema. And you can find me on Letterboxd, uh, also at Michael Snidell. All right. And you can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan, same for Letterboxd and pretty much every other social media network. Check it out. Uh, you can Except find Instagram. <laughs> no, you can find me on there on Instagram under that. Oh, don't know where you got that idea from michael anyway uh also you can find this uh show every episode we've ever done over at thefilmstage.com so ladies and gentlemen thank you for joining us and tune in next time nobody knows the trouble i've seen Nobody knows my sorrow.